0: Okay, we're continuing on with this discussion of the Ten Commandments, and I'm really glad you're all here. Uh, this has been quite a good deal of fun, and, and uh, this is really getting to the, the place where I enjoy catechesis. I enjoy catechesis the whole way through, but I, I really like this stuff, uh, and, and too bad it's at the end and kind of in the summer as it's starting to get hot, But but I'm glad you're here. We're on page 114 in the Catechism on the Fifth Commandment. Um, one of the things I want to remind you to do is uh, to, if you haven't done this already, to memorize the Ten Commandments. <laughs> um, well, why? How should we memorize That sounds like a crazy thing to, to memorize. We have Bibles, right? Do you know where the Ten Commandments are in the Bible? <laughs> yeah. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 6, right? You can, you can get, or Deuteronomy 5. You can get there quickly, but you can get there much more quickly in your mind. Um, and it's not so that you can kind of be a fine, moral person all the time. It's, it's, it's so that you have constant reference to the commandments. Um, so they start to seep into, into your actions um, and uh, really take root. Um, I remember several occasions where I had to uh, examine poor young men who wanted to be ordained and they would get to their Bible exam, and I would just have on there, list the Ten Commandments in order from one to ten, and they would get maybe four or five because it just it just hit them that, like, I should, I should know all that. And for some reason it was just, I don't know whether they were nervous, but, but if they'd memorized it, it wouldn't have been an issue. Um, so uh, something I want to encourage you to do. Uh, the, old, the old catechists used to require that everybody memorize the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments uh, before being confirmed. So we're on the fifth commandment. What is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. What does it mean to honor your father and mother? While still a child, I should obey my parents, and I should honor, serve, respect, love, and care for them all their lives. Okay. There's a distinction drawn here between our duty in this commandment to our parents when we're young, right, uh, meaning, uh, and that's, that's left a bit, uh, well, still a child is kind of left... You know what is that exactly? Do you, do you stop being a child at sixteen? Do you stop being a child at eighteen? Magically? Well, there's a transition that goes on. I think those of us who've been through that, you can say, well, there, there is there's a transition which goes on. Uh, for many of us, it didn't finish until we were out of out of college, in a sense, um, because you always know when you come home, it's like, would you pick up your towel off the bathroom floor? <laughs> it's like all of that, and and uh, but it is there's a there's a significant transition, and we go from owing our parents obedience. To, uh, to, uh, to that being a transition to uh, simply honoring, serving, respect, and loving, and caring for them all their lives. The Israelites were given this commandment uh, as a guard against what was happening in many of the cultures of the ancient world, which was that elders were being, uh, were being uh, really thrown out of society. Um, they were being uh, evicted from their homes. They were being uh, uh, brutalized uh, as soon as they were no longer able to work, what was happening? Well, they were starving. Um, and this was seen as kind of a normal thing. Based in this commandment, uh, the Israelites, for a long period, and in fact, uh, the Jews actually had a, had a way uh, to basically make it so that uh, they, they were saving up for their own parents' retirement. Can you imagine that? It's kind of idea of Corban—you're saving up this, this money so that ultimately mom and dad can have a retirement, and you're going to pay for that. Um, you might say that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> you might say, "Well, I can't do that now." <laughs> but but that's 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 what it's there for. It's there to make sure that uh, the elders in a society are are cared for and cared for well. Um, remember that. Um, the catechism has a has a continuous teaching because it because it's actually the Christian faith, uh, that, that life is sacred from conception to natural death. So that doesn't mean that your life loses value as soon as you're unable to work. Um, it means that your life is sacred till you die. Um, and the 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 admonition here is to say: care for those who are who are who are aging, care for those who can no longer work. Um, this becomes difficult, however, I should say all of this uh, in a bit, um, because there are limits to this, to this honor, right? I think anybody who's had a r- difficult relationship with their parent can, can say this that there are limits to this. Um, and one that I would say actually is, is this that the commandments cannot be taken in abstraction from, from another. Um, so it's not possible uh, to honor your father and mother uh, while well, well breaking the first commandment, for instance, right? <laughs> mom and dad say, we want you to go worship Baal. What do you do? You Say, mom and dad, I love you, I'm gonna honor you. By not doing that thing, <laughs> um, and that that so that takes takes some savvy to see what it is. Sometimes this is even more difficult when we have uh, we have broken families, we have very dysfunctional families. It's very hard to carry out this commandment. Um, but it, it takes some wisdom, and it takes some seeking out. How should I do this? Um, how should I figure out? How should I figure this out? How should I navigate this? How did Jesus keep the fifth commandment? As a child, Jesus submitted himself to Mary and Joseph and honored his mother even as he suffered on the cross by entrusting her to his beloved disciples' care. Remember this exchange which takes place from the cross, Jesus saying to John, the beloved disciple, uh, son, behold your mother, m- you know, woman, behold your son. That kind of, uh, he, he is uh, giving her into the care of this disciple. Um, and that's an important thing uh, because uh, he's honoring her in doing this. But it's also that he's honoring her and giving her the place of a mother in in keeping her in that place. Um, So this is something we often forget when we read that passage. We think, oh, isn't that great? You know, He's going to take care of her, and isn't that wonderful? But there's also, she's going to take care of him. Um, And indeed, she's going to take care of the whole church. Um, So I think there's something that often happens, too, in church life and in family life, where older people are sort of put out to pasture in a sense. Said, well, you've, you've served your time. You're no longer necessary. Uh, go on now and get, get on with life um, and, and get, get, get busy dying. And, it's, and it's, the answer here is no, not at all. Um, there's, there is a need to preserve that place. Um, and I would say so often we wind up basically saying, well, you're no longer necessary. You're no longer needed. Uh, why don't you just stay home and rest and watch soap operas all day long? It's like, well, no, that's not that's not Christian motherhood. And in that, and indeed, in the ancient church, this is an important thing. In the ancient church, and it should be this way today. Uh, widows were given a pride of place in the church. Um, that was to say that uh, that their needs were provided for out of the church's funds. Uh, they were considered to be. Uh, uh, freed up from earthly cares, mainly like the cares of their husband and what he wanted uh, to be able to serve God without any uh, hindrance at all. And those of you who are married men, you can say, I know that I'm often a hindrance to my, to my wife's holiness, right? <laughs> drive her crazy. And so, and so this was an idea that was, that was very, very, very important. It was that widows are sacred. Uh, this transformed uh, Roman society. Uh, because one of the things that was often ha- also happening in Roman society was that uh, people were sort of, to climb the ranks of society, were, were, uh, were marrying again in a more an- advantageous marriage and arranging divorces and letting these women kind of go off by the wayside. Um, and one of the things that, that, uh, that, that the church was able to do was able to say, no, we're going to preserve that relationship. We're going to preserve her place in the church. This is very important. Um, so this is all key. Jesus submitted himself. This is important. Jesus submitted himself to Mary and Joseph. Um, and this is to say that, that uh, you know, it was very clear who was in charge <laughs> in, in Joseph's household, right? Yeah, Mary and Joseph were in charge, right? Uh, they were not uh, having this kind of kid-run household um even though their child is the son of god right <laughs> so there's a there's an understanding that and and you see this right in that story about the their entrance into jerusalem and and he gets left behind and he's disputing in the temple and they find him and they say son why have you treated us like this um they're still exercising that parental authority over him. um and it's it's not out of the ordinary it's it's a uh, it's it's a normal thing um so we've got to get that clear as well uh, so God has made us to be formed by our parents, has made us to be formed up as children uh, by their instruction and by their, uh, by their, uh, by their direction. Um, and I should say as well that as we get older, um, we're still made for that. Um, you don't just sort of forget all that at a certain age and say, well, I've outgrown my, my parents' authority in my life. Um, it just changes is what I'd say. Um, so that's an important thing to keep in mind. How else do you love God in light of the fifth commandment? I keep the fifth commandment in love to God by showing respect for the aged, submitting to my teachers, pastors, and directors, respecting tradition and civil authority, and ordering myself in reverent humility as is fitting for a servant and child of God. Oh, so here we see it gets complicated, yes? <laughs> There's more to the commandment. There's always more to the commandment than the basic literal sense. And here the commandment is expanded out. Um to love God by showing respect for the ages. Um, not just your parents, but all those who have aged. Um, submitting to my teachers. Um, now you may, have, you may have teachers at this moment, you may not have teachers at this moment. Uh, you probably always will have some kind of teacher, yes? I mean, someone who's gonna teach you something. Um, one of the most frustrating things in the world for a teacher is when you have a student who thinks they know better than you. Do you hear what I'm saying, yes? Okay, who thinks, I know more than you do, well, then leave, right? <laughs> like, uh, this is always so frustrating, I think, for Baylor professors that I talk to, where they say, why are you paying 50000 bucks a year for something you already know or that you don't care to learn? Um, submission to teachers is, is, is an important thing. Um, submission to pastors. Um, and this is often a very difficult thing for people, especially if they've had a, a, a damaged pastoral relationship. If they've had a, a difficult relationship, a relationship, how do, I, how do I have a good one um, without carrying all that baggage behind me about this? Um, and I've had the same thing go on. Um, you know, how do I learn to trust that? Um, and again, this is submission in the best sense of the word, right? This isn't sort of like a, a lording it over with authority kind of thing. Um, this is submission out of love. Um, and it's, it's an amazing thing when you see it happen and directors, meaning people that direct your steps. Um, you might have a group of people that you turn to for advice. Um, you might have a director in your office or in your business or in your, uh, or in your school, um, a principal for that matter. Respecting tradition and civil authority. Oh, my. Now, now this is where it comes down to a, to a really interesting thing, which is that as Christians, we have those who came before us, and, and laid down the faith for us. Um, you know, you just didn't appear as a Christian in Waco, Texas in the year 2018 by chance. Um, you're here because others have laid that foundation continually. They're constantly putting it down. Um, and, and very often, uh, modern people in every age get this idea of, well, we know better than everybody who came before, and we're gonna fix it all up right, and it's all gonna work. Because we know better, um, and there's there's kind of a what what CS Lewis calls a chronological snobbery to this. Have you ever heard of this term? It's where you say it's like because we are now like 30 years in the future, we know more than anybody ever has. Um, and you see this in the general tenor of our political debates. Yes, right. People say, well, you know, we've advanced, we've progressed, everything's better now, isn't it? So much better. And and the reality of it is, it's never better, really. Um, uh, and, and people, um, when, they, when they shed off this idea that you live within a tradition, um, everything is open to your own interpretation and everything is open to a whim. Most people throughout history have lived uh, much more attentive to a living tradition than we do now. Um, and that, that's damaged us as a culture uh, because we have no certain heritage. Um, everything's open to be created and recreated again. Um, and that's very, it's especially dangerous within the church. Um, and this is shown in recent, you know, things that we've got going on where, you know, the question is, are you going to submit to this, to this living faith and this living tradition and be um, a part of a living body that has, that has done this for centuries, or are you going to pave your own way? Um, and paving your own way um is not without some appeal, and usually what people say is something like this: "Well, you know, it's just so important for us to get with the times; otherwise, we're going to die." Um, or it's so important for us to to just be a little, more, to be quite a bit more flexible, so that so that people can, you know, not have so much aversion to church life. And you know, the answer is that never works. It never works. Um, the the most thriving churches in the world today are those that are that are solidly committed. Uh, TO MAINTAINING WHAT THEY'VE RECEIVED. GO AHEAD. SO, I MEAN, HOW DOES ANY COME TO BE THAT? I IS IT THE MOST tradition WELL, YEAH. SO, this is this this is, a, this is an important question it's kind of like well then you know what happened in the Reformation was that good or bad if, if you have to respect the tradition and I would say to you that um, what the reformers understood themselves to be doing was something very different from what we often think they were doing we often think that they were saying listen it's time for everything to change right let's let's get with the times that that was the Reformation in fact the Reformation was based firmly in a return to the sources uh, there's this whole uh, Flowering just prior to the Reformation of, a, of an idea called humanism, which is not humanism as we talk about it today. It was, it was. They had a they had a simple phrase in Latin. Ad fontes was the was the slogan of humanism, and it was to the source, to the fountain of knowledge. And by this they meant get back to the ancient sources. And for the reformers, they meant get back to the church fathers, understand what they meant. In fact, I was just reading a great passage in Thomas Cramer's uh, Doctrine of the Eucharist, and he is. He's just going to town, right, quoting the church fathers. Why? Because he's saying, the tradition which we received from those back in the first centuries has become, um, has become uh, deformed, malformed. Um, and so how do we know what the true doctrine of the Eucharist is? We get back to the church fathers. So in the face of uh, the Roman church's changes regarding a doctrine of the Eucharist, which started up in you know, about the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, um, he's saying, "We got to get back to what the fathers say," um, and it's it's uh, that's what I would say. Anglicanism is even is probably stands out among every other church in doing is saying there's this incredible emphasis on the fathers. Now, of course, that happens in other places, right? Roman Catholics have patristic scholars, and Baptists have patristic scholars, and and, uh, and but it's to say that uh, this is a, it's an important thing. To say, where the tradition becomes deformed, what do you do with it? Will you reform it? Um, And, uh, of course, if you're Roman Catholic, there's no such thing as real reform. right? Because the tradition is itself all the way down the line, and it doesn't actually get deformed, really. Um, What's that? Well, right, and there are reforms at times. um, But it's a difficult road to hoe. Because how can you say that today we, we proclaim the faith which was once delivered to the saints and, uh, and tomorrow we reform it? Well, it doesn't really work. The Orthodox have a similar issue, which is that the Orthodox just say, well, we've always been doing this. We've been doing the same thing ever since the time of the apostles and nothing's changed and it's always the same. And the problem is, yeah, but there are, there are you can look and <laughs> you can say, like, yeah, but there are changes, right? Um, now, a great question is, and I think this is an important thing to balance is, well, obviously the way the church interact, interacts with society is going to be different in every age, right? Because we have different cultural moments. We have different language that we use. We have all kinds of things that, that hit us. And how do we contextualize well-preserving is the question. Um, and missionaries have, you know, this missionaries have to do this all the time. It's like, well, how do we, how do we maintain the faith that we've received in this cultural place? Um, and that, that requires some savvy as well. And sometimes the correction is too much in one direction or too little in another, and, um, and it's got to be brought back on course. Yeah, it always is. So I think, I think Anglicanism uh, really stands out in this way. It says that that, that, pro, that that question of reformation is constantly ongoing. It's not something which stops. It's not something which, which breaks down. It's always happening. Um, However, the key is for it to not be as radical as you think it might be, right? Uh, because I think one of the, one of the things that, Anglican, that the Anglican reformers should be lauded for is that um, it was a very conservative reformation. Um, and they didn't say, well, you know, the danger is too far on that side, so we're going to overcorrect to this side. Um, and basically, you begin swerving down the highway. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think Anglicanism says, well, okay, we've got scripture. Right, we've got the tradition, and we've got we've got the ability to uh, to to walk that path in a in a in a reasonable manner. Uh, so, paying attention to the stripes in the highway, we're going to drive down the highway. <laughs> Do you see the point? Um, and that's really a that's really a unique thing. Um, and uh, well, so there it is. I think the the continental reformers. Uh, uh, you know in, and there are many different reformations within the protestant reformation but but anglicanism tends to be the most conservative portion of that so go ahead well so about the and Oh absolutely. We don't know the first We don't. No. There, there's, there's, there are old legends that uh, I love. These the old legends are sometimes even the best. Which is that uh, that Joseph of Arimathea got on a boat from uh, from Israel and went to uh, and went to England, um, and that he was the apostle to the English. So that's kind of a neat story, right? But it, there has to be something to account for it because by the time by the time by the time uh, we start reading accounts of the you know third century, there are bishops in in England in the third century. Um, so, and I should say as well, one of the things that, that the Anglican Reformers do, and we're getting off we're getting off topic, but we're really not. This is kind of a cool this a cool thing, right? Because we're talking about honoring our fathers and our fathers and mothers, right? How do we uh, how do we honor those who come before us, who are who are definitely still a part of us? Um, and Anglicans seized upon this really incredible little text in a in a, in a writing by uh, Vincent of Lorraine. Uh, where he's talking about what is truly Catholic, what is truly universal in the Church, and he says that which is uh, pra- that that which is practiced and believed always, everywhere, and by all, because um, he's traveled around the Church and he sees the breadth of what Christians are doing and what they're teaching and what they believe, and he says, as a basic rule, you can look at it and you can say that which has been maintained from the beginning right? Uh, that which has been done everywhere without reference to geography, right? So it's like this, you know, is what this particular church in Waco, Texas does, is that the only way? Well, no. What's, what's the way is what we share with every other church, um, and, and also throughout time. And the third corrective is uh, by all, meaning um, all, do all Christians believe this, um, and what do you what do you look to to figure that out? You look to the creeds, right? I mean, we're going to recite the uh, the Athanasian Creed today. And by the way, as much as it bristles against some people, the Athanasian Creed is Christian orthodoxy, right? If you know, it's really simple. If you don't, if you don't uh, uh, affirm the Athanasian Creed. Uh, you're probably in some kind of Trinitarian heresy, probably unknowingly and probably, probably, uh, it's probably all innocent, but, but it's just to say that that that's a corrective, right? And it's something we've inherited and something we've received. Um, so I want to make that clear. Okay. Um, but in general, that's how we say it. And, and I guess I'll say one more thing, right? Uh, if you really want to understand the English Reformation, don't think about divorces, right? Um, uh, Think about it like this: that what happened and what was happening culturally, which brought about those kinds of marital problems as a symptom, was something which the reformers were seeking to address. Um, which is the incredible balance—the you know, balance of power in Europe was completely was completely a mess uh, because, largely, because there were um, there were well, kind of unbiblical things coming in. And yes, all of that with Henry VIII was unsavory. And I think we can say yes, it was very unsavory. Um, but you know, little in the medieval era makes sense to us at all, and little in the time of the Reformation makes sense to us in terms of how people lived and what they did. Um, but we can say that what the what the intent of the reformers was to do was to was to um, was to bring about a a Reformation that. Um, was not so seizing upon novelty but was seeking to get back to what had been handed down okay right exactly exactly and yeah so a lot of it had to do with you know, selling indulgences and corrupt bishops and like all of that um, and you know one of the ways you you clear corrupt bishops is uh, you know this is an incredible idea in the Reformation right it was you know, your bishop should actually live in the town where he's the bishop. You shouldn't be living in Rome somewhere with a bunch of, you know, major domos to go do his work, right? And, and the English reformers fixed this problem. How did they fix it? Well, they made the appointment of bishops the responsibility of the king, which it still is today. And I should say, Queen Elizabeth is doing a terrible job right now of picking bishops. Terrible job. Um, and so that probably has to be reformed, right? So, so we went too far in one in one direction. So, all that is to say, we're we're getting there. Um, and it's and it's just it's just this constant reiteration of how do we how do we figure this out? How do we move forward? Okay, going on too far. Will such an attitude of honor come to you naturally? No, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. From my earliest days, led and driven by sin, I persistently attempt to rule in myself. Uh, one of the ways that I would say we, we experience pride in this life is in our attitude towards our parents. If you ever read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape letters, uh, Screwtape advises his nephew, Wormwood, get him to despise his mother. You remember that, that wonderful section? And he's, well, it's kind of creepy, actually. He's like, get him to despise his mother. You, you know, if you can get him to despise his mother, everything's back on the table. Yeah, he might be the most well-meaning Christian in the world, but if he despises his mother, especially because he believes that he's, he's getting devout and she's not, uh, that, that it'll all work out for the demons in the end because he will have, he will have adopted the easiest way to pride. Um, so, and, and I think everybody can look and say, there have been times when we expressed nothing but pride towards our parents. We thought, I know better, I know what's right, I know what to do, don't tell me what I'm going to do, and, and oh, you're so old-fashioned, and wouldn't you just get with it, and all that. It's, it's, it's all bound up in it. Um, and another thing, too, that happens is, you know, as, as our parents age, we, we learn that um, they don't always do things right. Um, They don't always do things in the right way, Um, and we can often be held to judge them for it um, and feel like we're justified in doing that or that we're showing concern for them in judging them, Um, and and all of that's window dressing on our own pride, really, Uh, so keep that in mind. Does earthly authority have limits? Yes. All earthly authority comes from God, who is the king of kings and expects me to love, honor, and obey him rather than others if they command me to sin. This is especially true as we face uh, the forces of modernism um, clamping down upon traditional life in America and other places as well. Um, you know, I, I, I don't mean to be alarmist, but I'm, I'm kind of alarmist about this these days. Um, the reality of it is that those who, uh, who do things like maintaining the church's tradition and the scripture's teaching on marriage are not going to be left alone in our society. Um, Because what we're we're accused of is, um, oh, thank you. What we're accused of is is a kind of bigotry. Um, And and this means that sooner or later, and I'm just going to say this clearly, sooner or later, you know, Christians in America are going to be called upon to just offer that one tiny grain of incense on the altar of Caesar, And and people will say, it's not that big a concession. You know, it's just one little grain of incense. What does it really matter at the end of the day? Who cares? It's not that big a deal. Get on with it and live. And the threat will be on your life. Um, Because what they really want you to do is apostatize. What they really want you to do is leave the faith behind. This isn't about the presenting issue. Um, This is about, and I'm going to be really clear about this, this is about the de-Christianization of America. Um, because there, there are powerful cultural elites in America who believe that America will never go on and will never attain greatness as long as we're moored in, in, in Christian teaching. That's basically it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, and, and I will say, too, we, we've got... We we don't really have the cult. We don't really have this, uh, you know, nice kind of uh, open-minded liberal culture coming down because that would be awesome, right? We'd be just like, yeah, that's really cool. Like, <laughs> we can we can live in that world. And no, this is this is cultural Marxism coming down upon us. Um, no, of course not. Of course not. So I want to I want to encourage you in that because the reality of it is that we have to <laughs> obey God rather than men, right? That's Christian discipleship. It means that we, and we also can't carve out a part of our life that is in submission to the state and say, well, everything else, you know, you got my arm, but you don't have the rest of me, right? So as long as my arm is the thing that's showing and that's the thing that's saying, yeah, yeah, everything's good, the rest of me can be a Christian because that's not discipleship, right? Um, when, When we say Jesus is Lord in the creed, that means over every last molecule of my body and my soul. Um, without exception. Okay. The sixth commandment. Is everybody ready now? This, that's kind of fun. <laughs> uh, but, but I would say, you know, we're, we're, we're getting close on that, right? Um, you know, think about things like, um, you know, in, and I don't want to use, you know, it seems like a cliche these days to use Canada as an example, but, you know, the forces are such that in Canada, you know, Christian families are losing, they're losing uh, custody of their children because they refuse to submit to the whims of the state. Um, they're losing, uh, well, remember this in, uh, in the UK, families losing custody of their child and the ability to give him medical care because the state decides that, that its will will be done over that of the parents who are simply seeking to be faithful Christians. Uh, this should horrify us. Now, say as well, um, Part of the question is how do we how do we uh, as as uh, how do we live in such a way to undermine that present power, um, while not being allured to the idolatry of that power? Does that make sense? So how do we how do we how do we stand firm against it, while not trying to take some of that power for ourselves and start to idolize it? Um, and that's that's a big question. I think I think a lot of Christians have gotten confused about that. They have said, well, you know, as a Christian, I've got to take political power to turn the tide of the nation, um, and it becomes, in many ways, an idol. And you can tell it's an idol because there are certain compromises that go on because of it. Um, this is what we've got in the ancient in the ancient church. We have a model for what for what steadfast discipleship looks like. Um, and it looks like, oh, you want me to, you want me to sacrifice a grain of incense to Caesar, and you say it's no big deal. Well, it's a huge deal, and well, I'm not doing it. And that's it. They said no, and they meant it. That's the key, right? And so I think I think we've got to be a people who can say no and mean it. And that's, and that's that's one of the things I think is really important. Is uh, we've often had this idea in America that uh, I'm a Christian in church, right? I'm just sort of a normal dad at home. This is for fathers or anybody really, um, and and I'm just sort of a normal, uh, you know, let's just say a garbage collector during the week. And, and I've, got my, I've got my faith here in the church on Sunday mornings. and I've got my home life over here. And there's no continuity in any of it. Um, it's all separate. It's all compartmentalized. And I think one of the things that we, that we have to start to do is we have to start to live in, uh, in communities that look a lot more like the church. So we start to live in homes that resemble the church. Um, we have to live in uh, homes that have a liturgy to them. Um, we need to start to think about in our daily work life how we can adopt, um, and I mean this clearly, liturgical practices into our working life. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're working at a computer at a desk every day, you know, when you sit down, make the sign of the cross before you start up. Don't forget that you do this as a Christian. You undertake this work as a Christian. Um, so those are some thoughts, but, but it's to say that all of life has to be undertaken prayerfully. All of life has to be undertaken with an awareness um, of God's presence with us as we go forward in life, as we do things in life. Um, and, and we have to, uh, well, we have to embody what, what the Lord's Prayer talks about when it says, you know, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and and that should happen in our church, and it should happen in our homes, and it should happen in our businesses. Um, my brother works for a company in, in Lubbock, Texas, where they build houses, and I've talked about them in the past, but... But their entire business is operated to let God's kingdom come to earth through their business, um, and it's just a radical idea. But it, but it means that for their employees, there's no distinction between their business and their church. Right? Uh, it is. It is. Uh, it's. It's. It's all the work of God. Go ahead. So, so a lot of, of churches agree. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, the only thing I can do is, is recommend that you read Dreyer's uh, Benedict Option. Ro- read Roger's the Benedict Option. It's a good. Op- it's a good book about exactly what That's you're talking so about. Great. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of scary in the start, but it, it gets going toward the end. I think the idea is to say that um, we, you know, and I'm starting to see this in my own life, right? That there's there's just We've got to be—we've got to be who we are as Christians, um, and not—not seek—not seek seek to be liked, and not seek to have favor with the world. Um, I guess the
1: group that I'm looking at for is the missionary.
0: Sure, of course. It's, it's fun to think about, but, but I think the, um, the, what he's talking about is that, um, you know, some of the, the real genius in the, Benedict, in the Benedictine rule is that uh, all of it, everything, every, everything a monk does in a Benedictine monastery is the work of God. All of it. The study, the daily, the daily tasks, the sweeping the floors, all of it. Uh, the time in the chapel is all the work of God. Um, so for the monk, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no discontinuity between, between those, those things, those parts of his life. And I think what, what one of my friends, Esther DeWall, says is that um, the, the rule is not just for monks. It's for everybody. Um, it provides us with a way to think about all of our lives um, as, as a school for the Lord's service. Right? Um, so I think that's something to just, just consider. All right, should we move on to the Sixth Commandment? This should be easy, right? The Sixth Commandment is, you shall not murder. What does it mean not to murder? Since God declares human life sacred from conception to natural death, I may not take the life of neighbors unjustly, bear them malice in my heart, or harm them by word or deed. Rather, I should seek to cause their lives to flourish. Okay, this is, I mean, I wouldn't just say, this is standard boilerplate pro-life language. It's there for a reason. Um, It's to say without any wavering whatsoever that uh, what we teach as Anglicans is the sanctity of life from conception and natural death. It's just to say um, that uh, we as human beings have responsibility uh, to all human life uh, to cause it to flourish and not to see it uh, and not to cause harm to it. How did Christ cause life to flourish? Jesus sought the well-being of all who came to him He made the blind see and the deaf hear, caused the lame to walk, cured the sick, feed the hungry, cast out demons, raise the dead, and preach good news to all. Um, We often think about those bits between Jesus' birth and his death and resurrection as sort of like unimportant little middle bits just to sort of whet your appetite and keep you reading, and and it's not unimportant. Um, Remember what Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Um, and I think what I would say is that human life is an unqualified good, meaning that uh, anytime you say, well, oh, yeah, human life is good so long as, uh, no, there's no so long as, human life is unqualifiedly good, um, meaning that there's no, uh, there's no greater end. It's an end in, you know, it's an end in itself. Um, and so, when when you when you see how Jesus causes life to flourish, it, it's a, it's an incredible thing. Right? You see the dying be uh, lifted up. You see even the dead raised. Um, you see the hungry fed. You see the poor uh, the poor um, given relief. How did Jesus extend the law against murder? Jesus equated unjust anger with murder. And if you read in the Sermon on the Mount, the relevant bits are quoted there in Matthew 5, 21 to 22. Um, you'll see this section where he says, I say to you, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, right? What's Raka mean? You fool uh, is liable to the fires of hell. Um, and the, the reality of it is that most of us will never commit straight up murder. Um, although more than you think. Um, but we do this all the time, where we dismiss other human beings as irrelevant and unimportant and, uh, and not sacred. Um, we treat people as though they are uh, they're something less than, uh, made in the image of God, and, uh, and it's always, always a problem. Is your anger always sinful, or can it be just? Anger may be just if I am motivated not by fear, pride, or revenge, but purely by love for God's honor and my neighbor's well-being. More often than not, however, human anger is sinful. Uh, there's a wonderful little section in uh, the writings of Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theological where he says, is, is anger always sinful? And he says, well, no, I mean, we're given anger as a natural response uh, to injustice, you see an, an, an unjust thing happen, and what, what rises up in you? Anger. You see it. It should make you angry. The question is, however, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to sit there in your anger and let it kind of boil over and just be angry? Or are you going to do something? Um, our anger at seeing injustice causes us to undertake certain actions, yes? Um, we see things happen that, that give us a reason to act, and we should act. Um, but I'll often, be, I'll often be hearing a confession and someone will say I just have, I'm so angry about this and sometimes it's wait hold up just a second do you feel like your anger was not justified well I just think anger is always wrong and I was angry it's like no hold up just a second your anger was entirely justified in the early stages <laughs> but, but as, as a week went on and you were still angry no not good um, what is it that Jesus tells us? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Um, and this, you know, for married people, this means don't go to bed angry. Um, and although maybe sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing, but but it means get reconciled as fast as possible. Um, you know, it means keep short accounts with your friends. Uh, don't let past hostilities and resentments pile up over and over and over again until they just burst like a balloon. Um, because what will happen is that, that you will start to take on habits of how you treat people that are based in anger and resentment and not love. Um, I will say this, however. Most of the time we overcorrect our anger by being more angry than we should be about things. Most of the time we, are, uh, we're, uh, we just plain Overreact. Um, and so, if you're one of those who overreacts, uh, um, often the best thing to do is to say, "Well, you know, my anger is not unjustified, but it's 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 over the top." Um, and what I need to do is start to learn to tone it down a little bit, start to learn to react more appropriately, um, and start to let uh, start to let my anger be um, resolved through just action. That's another thing that's important. Um, so there it is. Uh, Yeah. well i put it this way you, you always know that your anger is is uh is uh is is unjust or wrong when uh you seek to kind of outdo someone's unjust action with a more uh with a more violent action or with uh you know this often happens in war it's like well you know they killed this guy so we're going to kill 40 of them right um we're going to exact justice well that's not justice um you know, one of my favorite movies is The Godfather, and there's that wonderful scene in the office during the wedding, and uh, he says, "This I cannot do." <laughs> you know, your daughter is still alive. That's not justice. I can't kill the people who brutalized your daughter. That's not justice. Um, and in a sense, it's really sick that that's what's going on during the wedding. But there's there's a point to it, right? He's he's a man who understands what justice is about, uh, and should he be going around? You know, well, that's that's another question, right? But but the uh, I think the principle is that uh, very often. In anger, we exact higher revenge than what initially kicked it off. Um, and so you got to pay attention to that. It's, you know, anytime you, you're, you're, you're going above and beyond an eye for an eye um, is a problem. Even going eye for an eye is a problem in a certain sense. Okay. What other actions may be considered forms of murder? Suicide, abortion, genocide, infanticide, and euthanasia are forms of murder. Related sins include abuse, abandonment, recklessness, and hatred or derision. Um, So just so that we're clear, all those are included in the list. But I'd also say that, um, you know, this is always an important thing to see in a catechism, that uh, related sins include abuse, abandonment, recklessness, and hatred or derision. Uh, People often think, like, well, what's the bare minimum of a Christian ethic? You know, does it? Can I kill my neighbor if this? You know? Can I do this if that? And, and I would say to you that uh, we Christians are very idealistic people. Why? Right. Listen, Jesus doesn't say like, oh, here's Joe. Joe's about as good as you can possibly be. Be like Joe. Because you can't be like me because I'm perfect. So be like Joe. But I've given you sort of a minimal moral example. Well, what do we have instead? We got Jesus right <laughs> we've got Jesus um, and to be sure we have the saints and we've got we've got incredible uh incredible wealth of of spiritual resources in that regard but but I would say that the 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 model for the Christian life is always Jesus and always his word okay well we'll pick it back up on this next week oh yes uh this icon is um rublev's uh they often call it the Holy Trinity, although really what it is, it's uh, the three angelic visitors uh, from uh, from uh, from the book of Genesis. Um, and, yeah, they go visit Abraham, and they sit at table. Uh, but this is often understood to be the Trinity visiting, and and so in, in Russian iconography from Rublev Levant, it's understood to be uh, the, the Trinity. And one thing you can see is... Uh, is how their gazes. Do you see how the gazes work? So it's this. It's this uh, kind of. You, there's motion actually in the gazes. Um, if you consider the fathers in the center looking to the sun, and the sun is looking over, uh, looking kind of over at both. Uh, this, is a, this is providing motion to the icon. Um, of course, they're all gathered at a table. Yeah, um, and a table is a really important. Uh, image and of course you know all analogies for the Trinity really fall o- fall over on their head but this is this is about as good as it gets so this is what's up on the screen um, they're gathered on a table around a meal uh, because um, and I think this is to show us a couple things one is to show us that that there's a there's a just as there's uh, just as there's a koinonia and, and fellowship in the, in the body uh, there's a koinonia and fellowship in the, in the Trinity And so this was being shown there. Kind of neat. Okay. All right. We'll begin in a bit.